So um, I want to look today particularly at what we were reading from verse 12 down to verse 21. So from verse 12 to 21 is going to be the main focus of our, uh, our sermon today. If you have your Bibles with you, it would be useful to have them open um, on your apps or whatever as we go through this passage together. And at the centre of this passage, we've got two stories. And at least one of these stories is fairly well known, I think. And both of them have caused people some issues in understanding and in interpreting. They're, they're a little bit strange, maybe, what's going on with them. Right at the centre of the chapter and at the centre of our passage, verses 15 to 18, we have Jesus in the temple. So if you want a heading, that will be our first heading today. The temple. We'll have T headings today. So the temple. Now this is, is a story that a lot of people might be familiar with in some form or another. But let's, let's read it again as we find it in verses 15 to 18. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple. And as he taught them, he said, is it not written? My house will be called a house for prayer for all nations. But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Now, all four of the gospel writers record this event in one form or another. Um, and even outside the church, you'll find people who are at least familiar with the concept of the story of Jesus driving out the moneylenders. That's how often how it's talked about. And there's a lot of different interpretations and different twists and understandings about what's going on here. But some of them are a wee bit problematic. They don't hold up to closer examination. So I'd like us to take a look at this account as we find it in Mark's Gospel particularly and to think about what the text is teaching us, what it's saying to us, what it means to us today and what was going on. In order to think about that, first I want to think about what wasn't going on. I want to look at some of the theories and, and look at why they don't really work. And quite often when you hear this passage talked about, you'll hear it called the cleansing of the temple. That's one of the well-known names for it. It's sometimes the heading. If you look at it in NIV, uh, Jesus clears the, te the temple. But sometimes you'll see cleansing of the temple. Now there's precedent for that. If you were to read um, 2 Kings chapter 23, you could read about a time when Israel had been lost in idolatry and had done terrible things. But King Josiah cleansed the temple. He wiped the idols from it, he rededicated the temple, and he brought Israel back to worshipping the true God. So the temple was cleansed then. Around about 200 years before the event we read about in, in the gospel here, there was a guy called Judas Maccabeus. And at that time, the temple had been despoiled by the Seleucid Empire. They had sacrificed pigs in the temple to the gods' use. Judas Maccabeus organized a rebellion, threw the Seleucids out, and then reconsecrated, cleansed the temple, and reconsecrated it, ready for proper use. So some people say that's what Jesus was doing. But there's a problem with that. If Jesus was cleansing the temple, what was he cleansing it from? 
Because while the Romans occupied Jerusalem, they'd been pretty careful about the temple. The Romans hadn't trespassed on the temple. There were no idols set up there. They weren't conducting sacrifices to Jupiter or anything like that. There was no obvious idolatry going on. So what could Jesus have been cleansing? According to some people, what Jesus was objecting to was the commercialization, the, 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 the commerce that was going on, the money-making that was going on in the temple. That he saw it as an intrusion. And there's some problems with this take as well. Firstly, it's not really consistent with the rest of the Bible. Jesus doesn't condemn making a living. But secondly, and more importantly, there's nothing in the text that backs that up. There's nothing in the text that tells us that that's what Jesus was doing. A kind of a development on that argument is that what Jesus was objecting to was corruption. This suggestion that the moneylenders and the merchants, they were ripping people off. They were gouging them. They were profiteering. The Bible has a lot to say about that kind of behaviour. And Jesus has a lot to say about that kind of behaviour. But this text doesn't. It doesn't say anything about that. And although it has become popular to assume that there was some kind of corrupt collusion going on between the merchants and the priests, that there was some kind of deal they'd struck to fleece people, there's not actually any evidence that that's the case. The text doesn't tell us that. As a matter of fact, these people, the money changers and the, the merchants, what they were doing was they were facilitating worship. Because once a year, everybody had to pay the temple tax. And the temple tax could not be paid in Roman coin, which is what everybody would have had in their purses. You're in a situation, for example, where the church wants you to give, but they won't accept pound sterling. So once a year, these booths would be set up for a few days where people could come and change a Roman coin for the nearest thing they had to the shekel, which was what they had to pay the tax with. So without those booths, people couldn't have done that. And the sellers of animals, well, again, at this time of year, people came from all over the world to Jerusalem. And it wasn't that convenient to bring your animals for sacrifice with you, especially when they needed to be perfect. They needed to meet a certain standard. So people would set up stalls to sell animals to the pilgrims so the pilgrims could travel without them, come and buy an animal. And the passage particularly mentions sellers of doves. We're told that, that people were selling doves. Now that was for poor people who didn't have any livestock of their own. It's set out in the Levitical law. They could come and they could buy a dove to bring as a sacrifice. So without these people, the poor wouldn't have been able to worship. So these people are actually doing the work of the temple. And when Jesus stopped people from carrying stuff through the temple courts... This isn't like somebody standing outside and saying, we're not having ferries running on a Sunday. This isn't Jesus saying, we don't want any kind of work, secular work going on in the temple. The people carrying stuff would have been about the business of the temple. Stuff had to move from one part of the temple to another. They were doing the work of the temple and Jesus was stopping them. He was the one disrupting the worship. But for me, the biggest argument against any of these theories, these ideas that Jesus was somehow purging the temple by chasing these people out, is that if that is what he was doing, 
And he was almost completely ineffectual because he didn't stop these practices. It caused a fuss for one day, but by the next day, everything was back to normal. If you read on in the passage, you'll find that the next day, Jesus went back to the temple. The money changers and the merchants would have been back. And Jesus did nothing about them this time. So I don't think we should call this the cleansing of the temple because I don't think that's what's happening here. The text doesn't support that. So what was happening? If that's not what was happening, what was happening? Well, for that, we look at our second story. And our second story is about a tree. So there's our second T. We've got the temple and we've got the tree. And we read about that first in verse 12, where we read, The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him saying it. And then we jump on to uh, verse 20, where we read about the next day. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. (coughs) Now, this is a bit of a weird story. And it's one which has definitely caused people some problems. Only Mark and Matthew mention it. And it's the only negative miracle ascribed to Jesus. It's the only time he used his miraculous power to damage something. On the surface, it seems kind of unfair, doesn't it? Jesus is hungry. He goes to the fig tree. He's looking for fruit. There isn't any. So instead of maybe looking somewhere else, he curses it. And it dies. And in Mark's account, we even have this note that it wasn't season for figs. Now, a number of atheists have have pointed to this account as one of the reasons they struggle to accept Jesus as even a kind of a picture of a good man, a virtuous man, let alone a good God, if he's willing to do this out of petty spite. Was this just a frustrated Jesus? Is Jesus just like us when we're hungry and we're tired and we lash out, we lose our tempers? It's not really in keeping with what we know of him from the rest of the Bible, is it? So again, we have this conundrum. What's going on? We have these two stories, these two strange things going on, two different stories. Or do we? Because the key to understanding these events is made even more obvious by the way Mark structures his gospel, by the way he puts it together. Because he doesn't tell them as separate stories, does he? He tells them together, T number three, together. He tells them intertwined. And what we have here is what's sometimes called a Markan sandwich. There's a more technical name, you don't need it. And it's a flourish that Mark uses a lot. It's a, it's a style that Mark uses where he takes two apparently disconnected things And he shows that they are intertwined and that they need to be considered together. So you have the two parts of the account of the fig tree, which are like your bread. And right in the middle of them, as the focal point, you have, as it were, the meat in the sandwich. What Jesus does at the temple. 
And he does that to help us to see that to understand either of these things, we have to consider them together, not as separate stories, but as one. So Jesus's activity at the fig tree, the bread, helps us to appreciate what's going on in the filling, in the temple. And actually, one of the difficulties that some people has with this passage highlights that. Because that bit where, um, where Mark throws in this, this comment, it was not the season for figs. That's another thing that Mark does sometimes. He'll throw in this little parenthetical comment that pulls us out of the narrative for a moment and brings that to our attention. It wasn't the season for figs. You think Jesus didn't know that? We're not talking about a time where nobody knew how trees worked. Everybody would have known that figs bear fruit at a certain time of year, and this wasn't it. So that means that Jesus' motivation for going up to the fig tree can't just have been that he was looking for a morning snack. He knew there wasn't going to be any fruit there. He went there knowing that. So what does that have to do with the temple? Why has Mark sandwiched these events together? Well, there's some Old Testament stuff going on here. (coughs) Fig trees and vines as well were, were often used in the prophetic and poetic sections of the Old Testament as a picture, as a metaphor for God's people. And Jesus used that kind of imagery as well. In several places, he talked about fig trees and vines as a metaphor for the people of God. And when he talked like that to the people of the time who knew their Old Testament really well, that would have been obvious to them. They would have absolutely got that. They would have absolutely understood what that meant. So here we have Jesus in this story carrying out a symbolic action with a plant which is usually used to symbolize God's people. So what happens there? Jesus goes to the tree. He looks for fruit. There isn't any. Now at this time of year, the tree would have been in full leaf. It would have looked green and lush. From a distance, it would have looked healthy and productive. Not like my scraggly apple tree. It would have had loads of leaves on it. It would have looked really good. But while it might have looked healthy, there was no fruit. So it couldn't provide sustenance, nourishment to anyone. Without fruit, those leaves are all just show. What use is a fig tree without figs? Now, Jesus knew that this would be the case at this time of year, that he would only find leaves. So what point was he making? There's a couple of Old Testament passages that are worth thinking about here. And I've said this before and I'll say it again. We can't really understand the New Testament unless we read it with the Old as well. The Old and the New Testament (coughs) go together. Micah chapter 7 verse 1, we read, What misery is mine! I am like one who gathers summer fruit at the gleaning of the vineyard. There is no cluster of grapes to eat. None of the early figs that I crave. That's Micah. Jeremiah chapter 8, and in this case I'm reading the ESV because the translation works slightly better. When I would gather them, declares the Lord, 
There are no grapes on the vine, no figs on the tree. So here in these passages, God is using the barrenness of the plants, the lack of fruit of the plants, to describe and picture the barrenness, the spiritual barrenness of his people. And in verse 11, we read that the previous evening, Jesus had come into the temple and looked around examining it. And the next verse tells us that the following morning, he subjected the fig tree to the same examination, finding it barren and passing judgment on it. Does that help us to understand what was going on in verses 15 to 17? I think it does. Jesus came to the temple looking for fruit. And he found none. So, was Jesus cleansing the temple? Was he restoring it? Was he reconsecrating it and dedicating it? Well, is that what he did to the fig tree? No. Jesus' actions here were not so much about stopping commerce. We've already seen that. And they weren't about preserving the temple worship. Jesus' actions here need to be considered in the tradition of the prophets. Because quite often when you read the prophets' actions, they do weird stuff. They do these little bits almost of street theatre. They act out a scene which symbolises God's coming judgement. And that's what Jesus was doing. Because what he did was he brought the legitimate business of the temple to a halt. He stopped it. Not for long. But it wasn't supposed to be for long. It was symbolic, the fact that he stopped what the temple was supposed to be doing. He wasn't cleansing the temple. He wasn't restoring the temple. He was calling time on it. He was serving notice. He'd come looking for fruit, and he hadn't found any. And now he was passing judgment. The temple would have been busy. There would have been loads going on. It was coming up for the Passover. It would have been mobbed. There would have been so much activity. That's all just leaves. Leaves which sustain the tree, but do nothing to provide sustenance for anyone else. And in verse 20, we can see the result of Jesus' judgment on the tree, that in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. In just 24 hours, it was dead. All of its leaves couldn't save it when its root was withered. When we look at Jesus' actions in the temple, sandwiched together in this prophetic way. I think that's quite sobering. What was the fruit Jesus was looking for? Well, again, the the Old Testament, speaking of Israel's figs and vines, the idea was that the fruit that they produced was not to benefit the plant, but to benefit those around them. Israel was supposed to show God to the surrounding nations so that they could come to know him as well. Micah, that we already looked at and we sang, speaks of justice and mercy being outworkings of faith that God expects to see, not just for their own sake, but because they point to him, to his character. Jesus didn't come to clean the temple up. He 
He came to shut it down. We read what he said in verse 17. He said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. That first bit that he said, the bit about the house of prayer, that's from Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56 is a chapter that talks about the need for righteousness, that talks about the need for justice, calls on God's people to live in such a way that he is revealed to the nations around them. It speaks of the expansion of God's people beyond geographic and national boundaries. It speaks of people from all nations being grafted in. And the next bit. The den of robbers, that's from Jeremiah. We already looked at Jeremiah briefly. Jeremiah chapter 7 and verse 11 this time, where he says, Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. But listen, listen to what comes next. See, sometimes when you see a footnote in your New Testament that says recording the Old Testament, Sometimes it's worth looking at the whole passage because if we were to continue reading from verse 12, we would read, Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your ancestors. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your fellow Israelites, the people of Ephraim. That's Jeremiah 7, carrying on from what Jesus said. So Jesus is tying his actions to a part of the Old Testament where God reminds his people that he already destroyed Shiloh. And for historical context, Shiloh was where God's ark used to rest before the temple was built. It was like the prototype of the temple. (coughs) And he says that if he destroys Shiloh, he will not hesitate to destroy his temple. And in fact, that came true. Jeremiah's prophecy came true when the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. So I think Jesus' message was pretty clear to the religious authorities, to the priests and the scribes, don't you? Is it any wonder that we read in verse 18 that the chief priests and teachers of the law started looking for a way to kill him? They knew exactly what he was saying. But surely, surely you might say, the temple was God's design. God instigated it. He set it up. Why on earth would Jesus judge it this way? Well, the temple was no longer serving its purpose. The point of the temple, the reason for the temple was to point to God, to symbolically remind the people of God's presence with them. It was to be a place where he was to be worshipped. And part of that worship was to be the outpouring of blessing to all nations. But something had gone wrong. The temple should have been a means to an end. But instead it had become an end in and of itself. The temple and the religious worship that went along with it, that had become an idol. It was all leaves and no fruit. But there's something else. 
there's another reason why Jesus called time on the temple. That passage from Isaiah, Isaiah 56, if we were to read the first verse of that, we would read, this is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right. For my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. My salvation is close at hand. More or less literally that would read, for my salvation comes near. And you know what the Hebrew word for salvation in that sentence is? It's Yeshua. Yeshua, the Hebrew word, which once it's passed through the Greek, gives us the name Jesus. For my Yeshua is near, and my righteousness will be revealed, says the Lord. So the temple was where God symbolically dwelt on earth. But now you're standing in its courts is Yeshua, Jesus, literally God, physically dwelling on earth. So not only was the temple failing to do what it was supposed to do, it was no longer needed. Because something much greater was here. Someone, God, revealing himself in the flesh. God, righteousness revealed in Jesus. The temple was done for good, finished, because the one who the temple pointed to was right here. That's all very well, you might say, but that still leaves us with a question to consider. What does it have to do with us? What does it mean for us here in Fife in the 21st century? The temple's gone. The temple was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD, about 40 years after Jesus prophesied <coughs> What do we do with this story? Well, to answer that question, we need to ask another question. What is the temple today? If that great building is gone, what is the temple? What has taken its place? Well, basically, folks, it's the church. There's a bit of a trap here, though. It's one which people can easily fall into, which is to think of either the church building or the church as an organization, as a denomination, as being God's temple. Now, in some ways, we're at a bit of advantage here, aren't we? Because we don't have our own building. But it is still way too easy to start thinking about sacred spaces and church buildings as the house of God. Psalm 122, in the, 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 the old version that we, we sometimes sing, I joyed when to the house of God go up, they said to me. That psalm was really, really popular post-COVID when we all got back into our buildings for the first time. This idea of thinking that our building is the house of God. Rubbish. Sorry. But absolute rubbish. Our buildings are not the house of God. They are not the temple. The free church is not God's house. The temple is the church as the people of God, wherever they are, the people. 1 Corinthians three sixteen. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? John 14, 23. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. 
My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. The New Testament is full of passages like that you can pull out. God's people, both gathered together and as individuals, the temple is us. It's you. That sounds great, doesn't it? But it does mean that this passage speaks to us as a challenge and as a warning. Are you a fruitful tree? Or are you all leaves? Is our church, does it look great from a distance? Is it full of activity and bustle and programs, but up close? Kind of disappointingly fruitless. Are you, as a follower of Jesus, productive? Or are you largely ornamental? And I have to ask myself that question as well. Galatians 5, we looked at with the kids, speaks about the the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You know, that's hard sometimes, isn't it? That is really hard. But there is good news. Because although we are expected to show these fruits, we are not expected to produce them on our own. They are the fruit of the Spirit. So we need to be constantly humbling ourselves. And we need to be constantly coming before God and saying, Lord, Lord, make me fruitful. And for that, we need to be rooted in his word. It is what you are rooted in that will determine the fruit that you produce. If you are rooted in toxic poison ground, you can never produce good fruit. You need to be rooted in his word. Are you? Then get ready. Get ready to be amazed by what he can do in and with your life. Where's your root? Where is your root? Not in your heritage, not in your background, not in your history or your culture, not your denomination or your position. Where are you rooted right now? What is nourishing you? The church is a weird organization. Let's be honest about that. And one of the ways in which it is weird is one of the few organizations which exists primarily for the benefit of its non-members. It exists primarily to benefit people who are not part of it. Leaves, all that activity, might help to nourish the tree. But... The fruit is for everyone else. And the result of a church being fruitful is that a well-fed and nourished people around them will want to know more. The result is seeing more and more people grafted on to become branches of that great tree to the glory of God. Is that not what we're all about? And if God didn't hesitate to cut down the unfruitful tree that was his temple, not once but twice... Don't you think we need to take that pretty seriously? Pretty seriously. Someone gives us a picture of a tree. The righteous person, it says, is like a tree planted by streams of water. To a desert people, that would have been amazing. Yielding its fruit in season, whose leaf never withers. 
What a great picture that is. Could be you. Rescued by Jesus, grafted into his people, feeding on him and bearing fruit. Could be you. Fulfilling the purpose you were made for. But there's something to look forward to as well, because that picture looks forward beyond the now. The idea of fruitfulness is quite often used as a picture in the Bible to talk about the messianic kingdom. God's kingdom fully established when Messiah comes. It's a really, really potent picture. This Jesus is coming back. And we will know great fruitfulness at that time. Revelations chapter 20 verse 22 speaks about the temple. It speaks about the great city that God will bring forth. The revived heavens and earth. And it says, I did not see a temple in the city. Because the Lord God Almighty are the Lamb and his temple. We won't need a building to remind us of God's presence. Because we'll be able to see him for ourselves. Isn't that awesome? It's about recognizing Jesus as Messiah. Messiah means fruitfulness. One commentator said, it may have been being a bit tongue-in-cheek, but I think there's something to it, that if the fruit tree had realized who was looking at it, it would have burst into fruit regardless of the time of year. When Messiah comes, when Jesus comes, bring forth fruit It's easy to say this isn't a good time for being fruitful. It's easy to say that, isn't it? The culture's hostile. The environment's hostile. The cost of living is through the roof. I'm busy. I'm tired. I'm worn down. We don't have a building. We're vacant. It's not the season. But Jesus is looking for fruit. Jesus says, I'm here. It's the season to be fruitful. The Spirit can make us fruitful regardless. So Jesus is here and he is looking for fruit. What's he going to find? What's he going to find when he looks at us, when he looks at you? He doesn't just want to find leaves, he wants fruit. What will we find?